So if you have your Bibles and you want to open them to Matthew chapter 5, that's where we will begin again today. We are starting down a a trek through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, The Really, the first major teaching that we see Jesus giving, and it's the longest teaching that he gives in the Scripture. And I, just a brief review as we get going in just a moment. Um, I encourage you, if you do miss them, they're all online on our website. Um, I encourage you to kind of keep up if you can. Sermon on the Mount. The title this week, my title this week, is What Do You Crave? What do you crave? Do you crave anything? What is it that you crave? You know, when you think about this craving thing, you know, there's lots of things, you know, I I really like that, or I really like some of that, or I really, really would be kind of nice to have some of that. We like something. Then it gets a little bit greater. You know, I really want some of that. I, I really do not only like it, I want it. And then we can take it even a step further, and not only do I like it and want it, now I kind of need it. I need that thing or that stuff or that whatever it is that we're craving. And it can be anything. We crave some of the craziest things. But then there gets to that place where I'm craving it. You know, it goes beyond in our mind. It goes way beyond liking something or wanting something or thinking that we need it. It's like now we cannot be satisfied unless we get it. We cannot be satisfied unless we have it. That craving is almost beginning to consume our thinking, consume our time, and we, we just can't stop until we get it, whatever it is we're craving. So the question that I'm going to be looking at and trying to answer today from the Sermon on the Mount is, what is it you're craving? And try to show us and help us maybe understand a little better what one of the things that we call the Beatitudes is talking about. Before I go there, though, I want to just... Quickly, quickly, uh, review. A few weeks ago, we talked about justification and sanctification. It's important that we understand it. I'm not going into great detail today, but we talked about being justified, justification. Justification is this process that Jesus went through through his death and suffering on the cross to deal with our sin issue. There was a price that had to be paid, a penalty that had to be paid. We could never pay it. He paid it for all. All who accept and receive what Jesus did for us on the cross. Justified. God did all the work. And he offers the fruit of that work to us through salvation. Our participation, such as it is, is simply to receive that gift. And the moment that we do, we are justified before God. Brian exhorted us this morning about we're a new person. Put on the new clothing. Put on the new garments. Put on the righteousness of Christ. It's available to us and given to us at the moment of salvation, and we are all equal. No one in here is more justified than anybody else. Some of us may be nicer people, but we're not more justified. It's all because of what God did. Nothing we did except said, I take it, receive it, and it takes grace to do that. So that's justification. Then there's that process of sanctification. Justification took place immediately at our salvation. Sanctification is a process. It started the moment we were justified, and it's going to continue throughout this life. It's a process. And it differs in justification in a couple ways. One, it is a process. It doesn't happen just like that. Two, it differs that uh, we can be at different places in this process. 
You know, if we're a, a new Christian, a baby Christian, we don't really know a lot of the Word yet. We maybe don't understand a lot of the Word yet. We haven't fellowshiped with Christians for a very long time. You know, we're, we, God does not expect you to be over there where the Christian who's been doing all those things, being led by the Holy Spirit, might be. And that's okay. It, that we're going to be at different places. And it's never going to be finished in this life. We're going to go through it. Becoming more Christ-like. It's a process initiated by the Holy Spirit. If you remember, we looked at a scripture that says, God gives us, or the Holy Spirit, not only gives us the desire to change, He gives us the will to change. What a great deal. You know, Lord, what is it you want? As Brian said this morning, what is it you want to me in my life? What needs to go? What do I need to make more space for? What do I need to do a little differently? He, he gives you the desire to even ask that question. In our own flesh, our own strength, we're just going to plow straight ahead. But he gives us a desire to ask the question, and then he gives us the will or the ability, the grace, the power aspect of grace to accomplish it. So justification, sanctification, both a critical part, critical part of our Christian walk. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, 3 through 12, where we're kind of looking at, it's what oftentimes referred to as the Beatitudes. And it, they kind of give a description, as I've been saying, of what a Christian should look like, what our life should look like, and a little bit of a roadmap of how we get there. You know, it doesn't just, the Bible just doesn't say there, now you're a crea- new creation in Christ. It's true, but what's that look like? How do I cooperate in that sanctification process if I don't really know where it's going at all. And Jesus, in this first major teaching of his, laid it out pretty clearly for us. In Matthew chapter 5, we discover and need to be reminded ourselves constantly that Christ is the example that's being held up all the time. You know what? We have a tendency to compare ourselves to each other. You know what? I'm never quite as bad as you might think I am because I can find somebody worse than me. Therefore, I feel a little bit... No, Right now, the only standard that's important, and we're going to be talking about it in verse 6, is Christ, God. He's the example. He's the standard. That should help us understand why it's impossible in this life to achieve that place. But the Holy Spirit is working in us to lead us closer and closer to it as we cooperate. We don't cooperate very well. We don't move very fast. The more we cooperate... Holy Spirit will just keep leading us, giving us. He knows exactly how fast and how much we can take. But when we cooperate, it moves along much more quickly. We looked last week at verses 3 through 5, and you can call it a number of different things. I came across a couple phrases that I really liked this week in looking at it. They call it verse 3 Beatitudes and verse 3 through 5. They're kind of like a self-examination. It's kind of like an emptying process. It's like looking at the mirror and discovering and seeing what we really are without Christ. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those that realize just how helpless we are in our own strength to ever meet God's standard. The poor in spirit. We know we can't do it on our own in any way, shape, or form. We're helpless. And that our condition is, is totally contaminated by sin, and we can't do anything about it without him. Then it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Now, you can take that in more of a natural application, but I believe is really his point is it goes with the first one. We know how helpless we are, poor in spirit, and we are grieved by it. We mourn. We don't just wink and nod at sin anymore. It's a big deal to God. Jesus died for our sin. We love to play with sin. We love to get close to the edge, see how far we can push the envelope. God's not impressed with how close you get to the edge or how far you can press the envelope. He says, flee from temptation. Don't play with it. So mourning, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. They will be comforted through salvation, sin being dealt with, the forgiveness of our sin. When we go through this and understand, not only should we be grieved because of what we've done, we should be grieved because how we're grieving the Father's heart. You know, as a natural parent, think about it just in the natural, and we don't come close to what God feels. But you know what? What does it make you feel? How grieved are we when we know something will be destructive for our children? We know there will be consequences. We tell them what the truth really is, and they go do it anyway. And you know it just breaks your heart. Now magnify that exponentially, and that's how we should think about our sin grieving the Heavenly Father's heart. And then last, the meek or the gentle, depending on your translations. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The humility, the humbleness. Those who are no longer feeling this overwhelming need to always defend ourselves. The Scripture says, let Christ be your defense. Walk in humility, letting our lifestyle demonstrate our humility to the God, to the Lord who has saved us, but also to others around us. You know, to be persecuted like Jesus was persecuted and yet continue to bear fruit in our life. Not fruit of anger or revenge and all those kinds of things, but godly fruit. Even in the face of persecution, that's unjustified. And it's always a good reminder to realize that Jesus was persecuted more than any of us are ever going to experience in this life, and not one single moment of it was justified. Except it was fulfilling the Father's plan. But he did no wrong. He did not deserve a bit of it. So to be meek, the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek. So we're kind of looking into that mirror and, and an examining in us, where are we in that? Where are we? Do we demonstrate? And it's the Holy Spirit revealing this to us, the Holy Spirit causing us to look this way. And really, if I was going to just put it in words, we might understand, have you reached the bottom yet and realized you're a sinner and you can't do anything about it? He's a holy God and we're not even close. Does it bother you? Are you grieved by it? And can you humbly go to whom, him, the only one who has the answer? And that's the beauty of verse 6. It gives us the answer. We don't have to sit there and wonder. It gives us the answer. When we get to verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I'll point this out probably more than once, but read it carefully. Blessed are those, blessed are those that what? 
that are righteous? No, it doesn't say that. Blessed are those that are satisfied? No, it doesn't say that. It says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. They crave after righteousness. And only the Holy Spirit can put that in us. But He wants to all the time. So we just have to be open to receive. And do we hunger and thirst? Do we crave righteousness? And the promise there is, which we'll get to, is satisfied. It comes in our salvation, in our justification, in our sanctification. It comes. But notice, hunger and thirsting. And before we look at hunger and thirsting in, in detail and the satisfaction that comes, I want to talk a little bit about the object of hunger and thirsting. The righteousness. You know, in a broad sense, if you're going to define righteousness in just a very broad sense, uh, righteousness would be someone who is acting like they're supposed to act, being what they're supposed to be, according to a set standard. For example, you could go to a court of law for, and, and being accused of a crime, they present all the evidence, and they look at you and say, you know what, we've examined all the evidence, and you are righteous in what you've done. In other words, you've met the standard. You are righteous. He was a righteous in that act of a shooting. He was righteous or she was righteous in what they did. In other words, they meet the standard. Well, with us in righteousness from a spiritual perspective, the problem gets to be the standard. We are now being compared to God. We are compared to his character. That's the standard. For us to be seen as righteous in God's eyes, we would have to be absolutely perfect in every way, just as he is perfect. (laughs) There's quite a calling, isn't it? I want to be righteous. I want to be holy and righteous. I want to be pure. I don't even want a bad thought to go through my brain. I want to be righteous. I don't want a bad word to escape from my lips. I want to be righteous. You know, good luck with that, right? It just proves the point. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, the term righteousness is used to define the relationship of the people with God based on obedience. Based on obedience. From day one in the garden, for Adam and Eve to be in relationship with God, they had to obey one rule. Don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they broke that rule, sin entered in, and the relationship was changed. It was changed because of sin. And then when we look through the Old Testament, we see God's people. The, they were given the, the Ten Commandments, and then they were given the rest of the law. And for them to remain in covenant relationship with God, what did they have to do? They had to obey the commandments. They had to obey the law. When the covenant was made between God and Israel, there it was. God says, you do thus and thus, and I will be faithful on my end. Well, for him to have to be held to his aspect of the covenant, we needed to, or Israel needed to, follow the law. And the point that was being made to them was, you can't do it. It's impossible to follow the law perfectly. The whole sacrificial system that was set up in the Old Testament points to that fact that Israel couldn't follow the law. They couldn't be righteous no matter how hard they tried. The best priest, the best 
Pharisee, the best scribe, couldn't meet the standard, which was God's character. God. And in the New Testament, the cross points to the futility of any of us trying to earn God's favor and earn our way to salvation, earn our way into eternal relationship with him in his presence in heaven. The cross is the symbol that says you can't do it. It can't be done in your human natural strength. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus, because of what he did, we became these things, so that just as it is written, I let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. All who have been justified, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, and this is Paul saying this, I'm making an appeal. God's making an appeal through us. He's speaking through Paul, as just as he would make an appeal through any of us to someone who has never accepted Christ. We are that voice that the Holy Spirit will use to make an appeal to do what? Paul says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be brought back into right relationship with God. How does that happen? He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of him. In God's eyes. When God looks at you and me, the standard hasn't changed. The standard of righteousness, the standard that is required for us to spend eternity in heaven has not changed. The standard is still God's righteousness. But he says, I, through what Christ did, now have given to you, inferred to you, or imputed to you the righteousness of Christ. So if when God looks at me from a, uh, to justify from a, from a legal perspective, if you would, if he looks at me, he doesn't see Mike with all his garbage, with all his sin, with all his bad thoughts and the foul words. Or he doesn't see any of that. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Brian was talking about when he was encouraging us. We've been given this, this mantle, this cloak of Christ's righteousness. The moment we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the moment we do that, and the Scripture goes on and talks about blessedness, blessed or satisfied. He says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. You know, the crowds, when they heard this word, remember Jesus was speaking to a large crowds. We have no idea what kind of mixture the clouds were. We know he spoke primarily to Jewish people but we don't know for sure what the group of people was. But when they would have heard this word, Markerios, it would have caught their attention right away when he said, you know, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be, and the, the Greek words, makarios. When they would have heard that, their ears would have pricked up because what it was saying was divine joy, perfect happiness. And the pagans of the day, and even to a large degree, the Jewish, some of the Jewish sects, only believe that type of 
feeling, that type of joy, that type of peace, that makarios was only available to the gods or to dead people after death. No one else could experience it. And here's Jesus saying it over and over and over again that those who do these things will be makarios. And their ears would perk up and they would say, wow, I think that would be pretty cool. Blessedness results. Notice again in that verse when we read it, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. Blessedness results or satisfaction results. This kind of happiness or joy results from seeking something else. You tracking with me? This kind of happiness, this kind of joy, this kind of peace comes from seeking something else. Most of the world, most many of us, are looking for happiness or satisfaction or peace by seeking happiness, satisfaction, or peace in all the wrong places. If we want this kind of righteousness, this kind of satisfaction, this kind of blessedness, we don't seek it, we seek something else. And what does he say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. The focus here in this verse is the hungering and the thirsting. And the blessedness, the satisfaction will come out of that. What are you craving? Our world is looking, our, our advertising in this world is presenting all these different things. New cars, new homes, fancy clothes, drugs, alcohol, sex, you name it. It's all being offered up for you to be what? Happy. Guess what? It lasts about that long. And usually when we search for the happiness and the things that we go to find it in, it leads to the exact opposite. It leads to misery. We're seeking happiness. We go for it over here, and it's like the balloon breaks. And now we're more miserable than we were before. So when I say this comes from seeking something other than the blessedness, the hunger, and the thirsting. It's a little bit like having a pain and you go to the doctor. And all the doctor does, and sadly some do, is they give you things to alleviate the pain without ever going after the cause. And whatever you were doing to alleviate the pain, as soon as you quit doing it, guess what? The pain comes back. It needs to be treated. The verse says, Blessed is the man not who seeks righteousness, but hungers and thirsts for righteousness. So let's get to the hunger and thirsting. What's it mean? It's interesting that it uses hunger and thirsting, water and food. How many of us know that you can't live without those two things? We, we usually don't have a shortage, but we can't live without them. We absolutely need water and we, we need food. And this is what's being used as a metaphor because hungering and thirsting for food, as important as it is to the natural body, so is righteousness to our spiritual life. We can't survive without food and water. Spiritually, we will not survive without the righteousness of Christ. 
Because if we don't have the righteousness of Christ, we're not even saved. Because when we're saved, we're given the righteousness of Christ. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The Holy Spirit brings us to that place. And, and, we, and as I've said, we go about it so wrong. We look for all the wrong things. We try to try all the wrong things. You know, there's a great example and a very familiar story in the Bible. It's called in your heading in the Bible, it'll say the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with it, it's in Luke, I believe it's chapter 15, I think. Is that right? Some of you theologians. I think it's in Luke chapter 15. But the prodigal son, this, this well, relatively wealthy, apparently wealthy uh, farmer, has got two boys. And the younger son goes to his dad and says what? I would like my inheritance now. In their culture, they could do that. And if the father wanted to, he could give it to him. The older son got the double portion. The younger son got his portion. So he went to his father. And whatever it was he gave him, whether it was land or livestock, he evidently cashed it out quickly. And he said when he got his inheritance, he took off to a far land looking for a good time. He was sick of farming. He didn't want to work. He wanted to go out and have a great time. And he entered into all kinds of lascivious living. Matter of fact, when you look at those verses, it says he squandered his money with loose living. And that is such a polite translation. A little bit later, it says he, he happens to mention some harlots being involved. But I want to just share with you, if I can find it in my notes quickly, the riotous living that is there. In our English, there's a couple of words I wasn't familiar with. Matter of fact, you know you're in trouble when you've got to look them up in the dictionary to get the, how to pronounce them. But dissolute or profligately, profligately. And listen to how it's defined, and this is what this word means when it talks about loose living. It means you're totally indifferent to moral restraint of any kind. You are given to immoral or improper conduct, utterly and shamelessly immoral and thoroughly profligate. In other words, like a culture in America. Moral restraints cast off. You want happiness? Don't put any restraints on you. If you want true happiness and peace, do whatever you want. Go try this. Go do this. Go into debt up to here so you have everything that's going to make you happy. Cheat on your wife. Cheat on your husband. Do a little dope. Smoke a little weed. Snort a little coke. Burn a little meth. Do whatever it takes. Spend your money and have a blast. That is the prodigal son. That's what he did. But then there got to be a little problem. Guess what? He ran out of money. I bet he was popular for a while, don't you think? You get in those circles and you got money, man, you have a lot of friends, don't you? As soon as you run out of money, you run out of friends. All that you had in common with your friends was what you were doing. And now you're miserable. And the prodigal son, all of a sudden it says he's broke. He doesn't have any food. He gets hungry. When he got hungry, what did he do? He went to a pig farmer. Now, in our day, pig farmer is not a bad thing. In their day, if you were a Jew, that was not where you went. But he was hungry. It even tells us he's, he's feeding the pigs, and he's competing for the food, the pods, whatever that was exactly. And he's, he's hungry. He's so hungry he's tempted. And it says no one would give him anything. And he was hungry. 
but he wasn't starving yet. He wasn't craving yet. He was just hungry. He'd have sure liked to eat. He sure wanted to eat. He sure needed to eat. But he only took it a little bit, a little step. He wasn't craving yet. We fall into that same track of looking for happiness, things that could never, ever, ever satisfy. Darby, J.N. Darby, if you've ever heard of the Darby Bible, that's who I'm going to quote here. He wrote this in regard to this prodigal son story. He says, to be hungry isn't enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed upon the husks. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. Are we hungering and thirsting, craving righteousness to be satisfied? Are we at a place where those first three beatitudes do we realize we are poor in spirit? Do you realize that we do you mourn over your sin? Are we humble enough to know that God's the only person and put self aside and throw ourselves at the feet of the cross? Are we starving? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He's looking, Jesus is teaching about those who are starving for a breakthrough of righteousness in their own life. And I know most people that are starving for that may not even know it yet. I can look back at my life, and I was starving for righteousness. But I didn't know that. I was just sick and tired of where I was at. I was sick and tired of being a crappy husband, a bad father, smoking dope and drinking. I was tired of that. I wanted more. I didn't know the words. I didn't know how to say it other than, God, if this is all there is, I'm through with this nonsense. And in His grace and His mercy, He extended to me His righteousness. And I hope not everybody has to get to that kind of place because the Holy Spirit is constantly tugging at our heart. He's constantly there. We may be far from Him in our mind, but He's not far from us. He's always right there just waiting. If we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And you can't do it on your own. A lot of us have talents and gifts. A lot of you are talented. You are gifted. You are intellectually sharp. You have all these things going for you. You're really good at doing things, solving problems in your own strength. But let me ask you this. Why do you feel so empty sometimes? Why is when there is a success or something that brings happiness, it's so fleeting? Because it will never meet the need that is in every single one of us, and that is for God, His righteousness, salvation. In the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that he rewards those who earnestly, I'm going to put a couple of words of my own in there, diligently, truly, and sincerely seeks him. I, I get frustrated with myself, and sometimes I get frustrated with some, of, some other people. 
I've been crying out to God for this, and he's just not answering. Really, are you craving his righteousness? Are you seeking him? Are you in the word? Are you praying? Are you meditating? Are you doing those things that will bring you to this place of satisfaction? Well, no, I just kind of prayed. That's what we're supposed to do, right? I I discovered in my own life, it works a lot better if I diligently, truly, sincerely am seeking him, not what I'm praying for. And amazingly, when I'm seeking him and his righteousness, here comes the answer to what I was praying for. Blessedness doesn't come from seeking blessedness. It comes from hungering and thirsting after righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, the Jews would have heard that and thought, geez, we can't, I mean, they're way up here and I'm way down here and they're not going to get in? Jesus was saying, there's no way. Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be given to you. Acts 17, 27. <clears throat> Paul is writing, it's, part, it's what's called the Sermon on, on, on Mars Hill. He's speaking to the Greeks the, in Athens. He says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps, perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Only God can satisfy the need that's found in all of us. If I could change the scripture, which I'm not trying to do, I would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will experience salvation, justification, and their life they will find satisfaction. We all want that. God wants it for us. It's part of his plan. It's part of his destiny for every one of us. Do we hunger and thirst for it? The only need that will, the the, the need of mankind, the only solution to that need is Christ. And the world needs it. You and I needed it at one time. Some in here probably still need it and have never accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. It's what needs to be done. It's the only need. It's offered to us by grace, a free gift that we receive by faith, trusting Him. What is it you crave? What is it you crave? Let's close in prayer. Father, I am so thankful that you provide the answer that all mankind is looking for. God, when we look in a mirror, do we really see the need and the hopelessness that we are and have in our own strength? Are we truly grieved by our sin and how it grieves your heart? Are we humble enough to come to the cross, acknowledge our weaknesses, confess our sins? That hungering and thirsting after you, your truth, your word, righteousness, that satisfaction will come. Salvation will come. So Lord, I pray that This morning, if there's anyone here that has never accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, today would be that day. And for those of the many of us here who have, that we would continue to hunger and thirst 
that the craving that we have for righteousness would, would continue day by day. That we would go after you. That we would consume your word. Spend time with you. That we may be satisfied. So that we may share the source of that satisfaction with all those around us who are looking at all the wrong places. That we would be salt and light to the world. Lord, I pray that we would do all these things for your glory and for your honor and nothing about us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And I pray you would watch over us as we go our different ways with all the activities of summer. We pray for those in our midst here or from our family here that are gone vacationing or traveling. Watch over them and keep them safe. Let them find times of refreshing. Pray your blessing once again on these two beautiful little girls, Cammie and Lily, their families. And we pray for Luann and her entire family at the loss of their mother. Be with them, minister to them. Lord, we thank you that we have you. We know you. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.